Chapter Seven of God's Country and the Woman by James Oliver Curwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. God's Country and the Woman by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Seven. For a time after they had cleared up the supper things, Philip sat with Jean close to the fire and smoked. The half-breed had lapsed again into his gloom and silence. Two or three times Philip caught Jean watching him furtively. He made no effort to force a conversation, and when he had finished his pipe he rose and went to the tent, which they were to share together. At last he found himself not unwilling to be alone. He closed the flap to shut out the still brilliant illumination of the fire, drew a blanket about him, and stretched himself out on the top of his sleeping-bag. He wanted to think. He closed his eyes to bring back more vividly the picture of Josephine as she had given her lips to kiss. This, of all the unusual happenings of that afternoon, seemed most like a dream to him. Yet his brain was afire with the reality of it. His mind struggled again with the hundred questions which he had asked himself that day, and in the end Josephine remained as completely enshrouded in mystery as ever. Yet of one thing he was convinced— the oppression of the thing under which Jean and the girl were fighting had become more acute with the turning of their faces homeward. At Adair House lay the cause of their hopelessness, of Josephine's grief, and of the gloom under which the half-breed had fallen so completely that night. Until they reached Adair House he could guess at nothing, and there what would he find? In spite of himself he felt creeping slowly over him a shuddering fear that he had not acknowledged before. The darkness, deepening as the fire died away, the stillness of the night, the low wailing of a wind growing out of the north, roused him to the unrest and doubt that sunshine and day had dispelled. An uneasy slumber came at last with this disquiet. His mind was filled with fitful dreams. Again he was back with Radisson and McTavish, listening to the foxes out on the barrens, he heard the Scotchman's moaning madness, and listened to the blast of the storm. And then he heard a cry, a cry like that which McTavish fancied he had heard in the wind an hour before he died. It was this dream-cry that roused him. He sat up, and his face and hands were damp. It was black in the tent. Outside even the bit of wind had died away. He reached out a hand, groping for Jean. The half-breed's blankets had not been disturbed. Then, for a few moments, he sat very still, listening, and wondering if the cry had been real. As he sat tense and still, in the half-daze of the sleep, it came again. It was the shrill laughing carnival of a loon out on the lake. More than once he had laughed at comrades who had shivered at that sound and cowered until its echoes had died away in moaning wails. He understood now. He knew why the Indians called it Mukwa the mad thing. He thought of McTavish, and threw the blanket from his shoulders, and crawled out of the tent. Only a few faintly glowing embers remained where he had piled the birch-logs. The sky was full of stars. The moon, still full and red, hung low in the west. The lake lay in a silvery and unruffled shimmer. Through the silence there came to him, from a great distance, the coughing challenge of a bull-moose inviting a rival to battle. Then Philip saw a dark object huddled close to Josephine's tent. 
He moved towards it, his moccasined feet making no sound. Something impelled him to keep as quiet as the night itself, and when he came near he was glad, for the object was Jean. He sat with his back to a block of birch twenty paces from the door of Josephine's tent. His head had fallen forward on his chest. He was asleep, but across his knees lay his rifle, gripped tightly in both hands. Quick as a flash, the truth rushed upon Philip. Like a faithful dog, Jean was guarding the girl. He had kept awake as long as he could, but even in slumber his hands did not give up their hold on the rifle. Against whom was he guarding her? What danger could there be in this quiet, starlit night for Josephine? A sudden chill ran through Philip. Did Jean mistrust him? Was it possible that Josephine had secretly expressed a fear which made the Frenchman watch over her while she slept? As silently as he approached, he moved away until he stood in the sand at the shore of the lake. There he looked back. He could just see Jean, a dark blot, and all at once the unfairness of his suspicion came upon him. To him Josephine had given proofs of her faith, which nothing could destroy. And he understood now the reason for that tired, drawn look in Jean's face. This was not the first night he had watched. Every night he had guarded her until, in the small hours of dawn, his eyes had closed heavily, as they were closed now. The beginning of the grey northern dawn was not far away. Philip knew that, without looking at the hour, he sensed it. It was in the air, the stillness of the forest, in the appearance of the stars and moon. To prove himself, he looked at his watch with the match with which he lighted his pipe. It was half-past three. At this season of the year, dawn came at five. He walked slowly along the strip of sand between the dark wall of the forest and the lake. Not until he was a mile away from the camp did he stop. Then something happened to betray the uneasy tension to which his nerves were drawn. A sudden crash in the brush, close at hand, drew him about with a start, and even while he laughed at himself, he stood with his automatic in his hand. He heard the whimpering, babyish-like complaint of the porcupine that had made the sound, and still chuckling over his nervousness, he seated himself on a white drift-log that had lain bleaching for half a century in the sand. The moon had fallen behind the western forests, the stars were becoming fainter in the sky, and about him the darkness was drawing in like a curtain. He loved this hour that bridged the northern night with the northern day, and he sat motionless and still covering the glow of fire in his pipe-bowl with the palm of his hand. Out of the brush ambled the porcupine, chattering and talking to itself in its queer and good-humoured way, fat as a poplar bud ready to burst, and so intent on reaching the edge of the lake that it passed in its stupid innocence, so close that Philip might have struck it with a stick. And then there swooped down from out of the cover of the black spruce a grey cloud-like thing that came with the silence and lightness of a huge snowflake, hovered for an instant over the porcupine, and disappeared into the darkness beyond. And the porcupine, still oblivious of danger, and what the huge owl would have done to him, had he been a snowshoe rabbit instead of a monster with quills, drank his fill leisurely and ambled back as he had come, chattering his little song of good humour and satisfaction. One after another, there came now the sounds that merged dying night into the birth of day, 
and for the hundredth time Philip listened to the wonders that never grew old for him. The laugh of the loon was no longer a ruckus, mocking cry of exultation and triumph, but a timid, questioned note, half drowsy, half filled with fear, and from the treetops the still lower notes of the owls, their night's hunt done, and seeking now the densest covers for the day. And then, from deep back in the forests, came a cry that was filled with both hunger and defiance the wailing howl of a wolf with these night sounds came the first cheep 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 of the little brush sparrow still drowsy and uncertain but faintly heralding the day wings fluttered in the spruce and cedar thickets from far overhead came the honking of canada geese flying southward and one by one the stars went out and in the southeastern skies a gray hand reached up slowly over the forest and wiped darkness from the earth not until then did philip rise from his seat and turn his face towards camp he tried to throw off the feeling of oppression that still clung to him by the time he reached camp he had partly succeeded the fire was burning brightly again and jean was busy preparing breakfast to his surprise he saw josephine standing outside of her tent she had finished brushing her hair and was plaiting it in a long braid he had wondered how they would meet that morning. His face flushed warm as he approached her. The thrill of their kiss was still on his lips, and his heart sent the memory of it burning in his eyes as he came up. Josephine turned to greet him. She was pale and calm. There were dark lines under her eyes, and her voice was steady and without emotion as she said, Good morning. It was as if he had dreamed the thing that had passed the night before. There was neither glow of tenderness, of regret, nor of memory in her eyes. Her smile was wan and forced. He knew that she was calling upon his chivalry to forget that one moment before the door of her tent. He bowed and said simply, "'I'm afraid you didn't sleep well, Josephine. Did I disturb you when I stole out of camp?' "'I heard nothing,' she replied. "'Nothing but the cries of that terrible bird out on the lake. I'm afraid I didn't sleep much.' The atmosphere of the camp that morning weighted Philip's heart with a heaviness which he could not throw off. He performed his share of the work with Jean and tried to talk to him, but Croisset would only reply to his most pointed remarks. He whistled. He shouted out a song back in the timber as he cut an armful of dry birch, and he returned to Jean and the girl laughing, the wood piled to his chin and the axe under his arm. Neither showed that they had heard him. The meal was eaten in a chilly silence that filled him with deepest foreboding. Josephine seemed at ease. She talked with him when he spoke to her, but there seemed now to be a mysterious restraint in every word that she uttered. She excused herself before Jean and he were through, and went to her tent. A moment later Philip rose and went down to his canoe. In the rubber sack was the last of his tobacco. He was fumbling for it when his heart gave a great jump. A voice had spoken softly from behind him. Philip? Slowly, unbelieving, he turned. It was Josephine. For the first time she had called him by his name, and yet the speaking of it seemed to put a distance between them, for her voice was calm and without emotion, as she might have spoken to Jean. I lay awake nearly all of the night thinking, she said. It was a terrible thing that we did, and I am sorry, sorry. 
In the quickening of her breath he saw how heroically she was fighting to speak steadily to him. "'You can't understand,' she resumed, facing him with the steadiness of despair. "'You cannot understand until you reach a dare house, and that is what I dread, the hour when you will know what I am.' and how terrible it was for me to do what I did last night. If you were like most other men, I wouldn't care so much. But you have been different. He replied in words which he would not dare to have uttered a few hours before. And yet, back there, when you first asked me to go with you as your husband, you knew what I would find at Adair House? He asked, his voice low and tense. You knew? Yes. Then... What has produced the change that makes you fear to have me go on? Is this because... He leaned towards her, and his face was bloodless. Is it because you care a little for me? Because I respect you, yes, she said in a voice that disappointed him. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want you to go back into the world, thinking of me as you will. You have been honest with me. I do not blame you for what has happened last night. The fault was mine. And I have come to you now so that you will understand that, no matter how I may appear and act, I have faith and trust in you. I would give anything that last night might be wiped out of our memories. That is impossible. But you must not think of it, and you must not talk to me any more as you have, until we reach a dare house, and then... Her white face was pathetic as she turned away from him. You will not want to she finished. After that, you will fight for me simply because you are a knight among men, and because you have promised. There will not even be the promise to bind you, for I release you from that. Philip stood silent as she left him. He knew that to follow her, and to force further conversation upon her, after what she had said, would be little less than brutal. She had given him to understand that from now on he was to hold himself towards her with greater restraint, and the blood flushed hot and uncomfortable into his face as he realized for the first time how he had overstepped the bounds. All his life womanhood had been the most beautiful thing in the world to him, and now there was forced upon him the dread conviction that he had insulted it. He did not stop to argue that the overwhelming completeness of his love had excused him. What he thought of now was that he had found Josephine alone, had declared that love for her before he knew her name, and had followed it up by act and word, which he now felt to be dishonorable. And yet, after all, would he have recalled what had happened if he could? He asked himself that question as he returned to help Jean, and he found no answer to it until they were in their canoes again and headed up the lake, Josephine sitting with her back to him, her thick, silken braid falling in a sinuous and sunlit rope of red gold over her shoulders. Then he knew that he would not. Jean gave a little rest that day, and by noon they had covered twenty miles of the lakeway. An hour for dinner, and they went on. At times Josephine used her paddle, and not once during the day did she sit with her face to Philip. Late in the afternoon they camped on a portage fifty miles from Adair House. There were no stars or moon in the sky this night. The wind had changed, and come from the north. In it was the biting chill of the Arctic, and overhead was a grey dun mass of racing cloud. A dozen times Jean turned his face anxiously from the fire into the north, and held wet fingers 
high over his head to see if in the air was that peculiar sting by which the forest man forecasts the approach of snow. At last he said to Philip, "'The wind will grow, monsieur,' and picked up his axe. Philip followed with his own, and they piled about Josephine's tent, a thick protection of spruce and cedar boughs. Then together they brought three or four big logs to the fire. After that Philip went into their own tent, stripped off his outer garments, and buried himself in his sleeping bag. For a long time he lay awake, and listened to the increasing wail of the wind in the tall spruce tops. It was not new to him. For months he had fallen asleep with the thunderous crash of ice and the screaming fury of storm in his ears. But to-night there was something in the sound which sunk him still deeper into the gloom which he had found it impossible to throw off. At last he fell asleep. When he awoke he struck a match and looked at his watch. It was four o'clock, and he dressed and went outside. The wind had died down. Jean was already busy over the cook-fire, and in Josephine's tent he saw the light of a candle. She appeared a little later, wrapped close in a thick, red, Hudson's Bay coat, and with a merchant-skin cap on her head. Something in her first appearance, the picturesqueness of her dress, the jauntiness of the little cap, and the first flush of the fire in her face, filled him with the hope that sleep had given her better spirit. A closer glance dashed this hope. Without questioning her, he knew that she had spent another night of mental torture, and Jean's face looked thinner, and the hollows under his eyes were deeper. All that day the sky hung heavy and dark with cloud, and the water was rough. Early in the afternoon the wind rose again, and Croisette ran alongside them to suggest that they go ashore. He spoke to Philip, but Josephine interrupted quickly. "'We must go on, Jean,' she demanded. "'If it is not impossible, we must reach Adair House to-night.' "'It will be late, midnight,' replied Jean, "'and if it grows rougher.' A dash of spray swept over the bow into the girl's face. "'I don't care for that,' she cried. "'Wet and cold won't hurt us.' She turned to Philip, as if needing his argument against Jean's. "'Is it not possible to get home to-night?' she asked. "'It is two o'clock,' said Philip. "'How far have we to go, Jean?' "'It is not the distance, monsieur. "'It is that,' replied Jean, "'as a wave sent another dash of water over Josephine. "'We are twenty miles from Adair House.' "'Philip looked at Josephine. "'It is best for you to go ashore "'and wait until tomorrow, Josephine. "'Look at that stretch of water ahead, "'a mass of white caps.' "'Please, please take me home,' she pleaded. "'and now she spoke to Philip alone. "'I am not afraid, and I cannot live through another night like last night. "'Why, if anything should happen to us?' "'She flung back her head and smiled bravely at him "'through the mists of her wet hair and the drenching spray. "'If anything should happen, I know you'd meet it gloriously, "'so I am not afraid, and I want to go home.' "'Philip turned to the half-breed, who had drifted a canoe-length away. "'We'll go on, Jean,' he called. "'We can make it by keeping close in shore. "'Can you swim?' "'Oui, monsieur, but Josephine.' "'I can swim with her,' replied Philip. "'And Josephine saw the old life and strength in his face again "'as she turned to the white-capped seas ahead of them. "'Hour after hour they fought their way on after that, 
the wind rising stronger in their faces, the seas burying them deeper, and each time that Josephine looked back she marvelled at the man behind her, bareheaded, his hair drenched, his arms naked to the elbows, and his clear grey eyes always smiling confidence at her through the gloom of mist. Not until darkness was falling about them did Jean drop near enough to speak again. Then he shouted, "'Another hour, and we reach Snowbird River, monsieur. That is four miles from Adair House. But ahead of us the wind rushes across a wide sweep of the lake. Shall we hazard it?' "'Yes, yes,' cried the girl, answering for Philip. "'We must go on.' Without another word, Croisette led the way. The wind grew stronger with each minute's progress. Shouting for Jean to hold his canoe for a space, Philip steadied his own canoe while he spoke to the girl. "'Come back to me as quietly as you can, Josephine,' he said. "'Pass the dunnage ahead of you to take the place of your weight. If anything happens, I want you near me.' Cautiously, Josephine did as he bade her, and as she added slowly to the ballast and the bow, she drew little by little nearer to Philip. Her hand touched an object in the bottom of the canoe as she came close to him. It was one of his moccasins. She saw now his naked throat and chest. He had stripped off his heavy woolen shirt, as well as his footwear. He reached out, and his hand touched her lightly as she huddled down in front of him. "'Splendid!' he laughed. "'You're a little brick, Josephine, and the best comrade in a canoe that I ever saw. Now, if we go over, all I've got to do is to swim ashore with you.' Is it good walking to Adair House? He did not hear her reply, but a fresh burst of the wind sent a loose strand of her hair back into his face, and he was happy. Happy in spite of a peril which neither he nor Jean would have thought of facing alone. In the darkness he could no longer see Croisette or his canoe. But Jean's shouts came back to him every minute on the wind, and over Josephine's head he answered. He was glad that it was so dark, the girl could not see what was ahead of them now. Once or twice his own breath stopped short, when it seemed that the canoe had taken the fatal plunge which he was dreading. Every minute he figured the distance from the shore and his chances of swimming it, if they were overturned. And then, after a long time, there came a sudden lull in the wind, and the seas grew less rough. Jean's voice came from near them, filled with a thrill of relief. "'We are behind the point,' he shouted. "'Another mile we'll enter the snowbird, monsieur.' Philip leaned forward in the gloom. Josephine's cap had fallen off, and for a moment his hand rested on her wet and wind-blown hair. "'Did you hear that?' he cried. "'We're almost home.' "'Yes,' she shivered. "'And I am glad, glad.' Was it an illusion of his own, or did she seem to shiver and draw away from him at the touch of his hand? Even in the blackness he could feel that she was huddled forward, her face in her hands. She did not speak to him again. When they entered the smooth water of the snowbird, Jean's canoe drew close in beside them, but not a word fell from Croisette. Like shadows they moved up the stream between two black walls of forest. A steadily increasing excitement, a feeling that he was upon the eve of strange events, grew stronger in Philip. His arms and back ached, his legs were cramped. The last of his splendid strength had been called upon in the fight with wind and seas, but he forgot this exhaustion in anticipation of the hour that was drawing near. 
He knew that Adair House would reveal to him things which Josephine had not told him. She said that it would, and that he would hate her then. That they were burying themselves deeper into the forest, he guessed by the lessening of the wind. Half an hour passed, and in that time his companion did not move or speak. He heard faintly a distant wailing cry. He recognized the sound. It was not a wolf cry, but the howl of a husky. He fancied then that the girl moved, that she was gripping the sides of the canoe with her hands. For fifteen minutes more there was not a sound but the dip of the paddles and the monotone of the wind sweeping through the forest tops. Then the dog howled again, much nearer, and this time he was joined by a second, a third, and a fourth until the night was filled with a din that made Philip stare wonderingly off into the blackness. There were fifty dogs, if there was one in that yelping, howling horde, he told himself, and they were coming with the swiftness of the wind in their direction. From his canoe, Quisette broke the silence. "'The wind has given the pack our scent, ma Josephine, and they are coming to meet you,' he said. The girl made no reply, but Philip could see now that she was sitting tense and erect. As suddenly as it had begun, the cry of the pack ceased. The dogs had reached the water and were waiting. Not until Jean swung his canoe towards shore and the bow of it scraped on a gravelly bar did they give voice again, and then so close and fiercely that involuntarily Philip held his canoe back. In another moment Josephine had stepped lightly over the side in a foot of water. He could not see what happened then, except that the bar was filled with a shadowy horde of leaping, crowding, yelping beasts, and that Josephine was the centre of them. He heard her voice clear and commanding, crying out their names, Tyre, Captain, Bruno, Thor, Wamba, until their number seemed without end. He heard the metallic snap of fangs, quick, panting breaths, the shuffling of padded feet, and then the girl's voice grew more clear, and the sounds less, until he heard nothing but the bated breath of the pack and a low, smothered whine. In that moment the wind-blown clouds above them broke in a narrow rift across the skies, and for an instant the moon shone through. What he saw then drew Philip's breath from him in a wondering gasp. On the white bar stood Josephine. The wind on the lake had torn the strands of her long braids loose, and her hair swept in a damp and clinging mass to her hips. She was looking toward him, as if about to speak. But it was the pack that made him stare. A sea of great, shaggy heads and crouching bodies surrounded her. A fierce, yellow and green-eyed horde flattened like a single beast upon their bellies, their heads turned towards her, their throats swelling and their eyes gleaming in the joyous excitement of her return. An instant of that strange and thrilling picture, and the night was black again. The girl's voice spoke softly. Bodies shuffled out of her path, and then she said quite near to him, Are you coming, Philip? End of chapter 7